0: Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Terrence Blanchard headlines the Frederick Jazz Festival at the Weinberg Center in Frederick, Maryland on Saturday night. I spoke to the five-time Grammy winner about his prolific collaboration with Spike Lee. From Do the Right Thing to Malcolm X to his two Oscar nominations for Black Klansman and to Five Bloods. Terrence Blanchard, hey, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP.
1: Hey, man, thanks for having me.
0: I'm sure you've come, you know, to the D.C. area, maybe Baltimore or something. But have you ever been to Frederick? I mean, this is my hometown. We don't usually get artists of, of your stature here at, at the Weinberg Center. We're excited. Have you ever been up there?
1: <laughs> no, I've never been to Frederick, Maryland, but my wife is from Washington, D.C., so I'm in the area a lot.
0: Well, we're looking forward to having you. I can give you a whole list of restaurants and stuff if you, <laughs> if you need to. But,
1: um, <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: We're really excited. Well, what what can, if our folks turn out to the Weinberg Center, what, what, what sort of can we expect? Obviously, it's the Jazz Fest, so lots of good jazz. But anything, you know, in particular, you, you know, that you know for sure is going to be on the set list here?
1: Yeah, we're going to be doing the music for uh, our latest album on Blue Note. It's called Absence, and it's the music, it's combined. It's the music of Wayne Shorter combined with, Original material in tribute to Wayne Shorter, and it's also. And I'm, I'm forgot. I'm sorry, I forgot the most important component. We're also joined by the Turtle Island String Quartet. You know, which has been like a man. It's been a joy to play with these guys every night.
0: Well, that's gonna be exciting. That's really really mm-hmm. cool. Everybody has to come check that out. So so all right. So in and then in addition to that new album at, in Frederick. Aren't you also this coming season at the Metropolitan Opera in New York? You're going to stay. They're going to stage fire. Shut up in my bones. Your, you know, your opera. It'll be this Mm -hmm. sometime this this opera season, 2021, 2022. Um, Right. I know it's notable. I mean, it's it's the first time that they've ever had an African-American composer do an opera there. Um, How how exciting is that?
1: No, it's incredibly exciting. And we just had the final show uh, on Saturday, but they're going to they taped it uh, with an HD broadcast. And they're going to rebroadcast it in theaters around the country. On Saturday, they did a live simulcast in 70 countries around the world.
0: Wow. And then how big of an honor is it? that I mean, it, well, how big of an of course, honor, but but also the fact that it took this long for an African-American composer to do it. Well, that's kind of bittersweet to me, you know?
1: Yeah, it is. It's filled with mixed emotions, obviously. I mean, it's a huge honor. You know, nobody, you would be crazy not to think so, but at the same time, you know, I thought about William Grant Steele and some other great composers who never got the shot. And as a matter of fact, they brought me a ledger from, from um, the Met that's part of their history dating back to 1919 where William Grant Steele's, and it's a ledger of all of the operas that were rejected. And it's, you, you can see William Grant Steele's name in it three times, once in 1920, once in 1935, and then again in 1939. And uh, that was a little disheartening and broke my heart and hurt my feelings. But, you know, hopefully we're trying to right the ship now and move forward.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a historic achievement. So congratulations, mm-hmm. sir. That's, that's amazing. Um, well, whenever I have someone of your stature on, I love to hear sort of your journey. So I know look, we'll remind everyone you were born in New Orleans back in what, like 62. Um, what sort mm-hmm. of stuff did you grow up listening to? I assume all the great New Orleans jazz. And weren't, weren't you childhood friends with with Wynton Marsalis, Branford Marsalis? <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we grew up together. I've been knowing those guys since we were in elementary school. Harry Connick, there was a bunch of guys, Leroy Jones. There's a bunch of great musicians from that area that we all grew up together, inspiring each other, you know, but we listen to all different types of music. While we grew up listening to jazz, man, look, I was listening to Parliament, Funkadelics, uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, all different types of music, even classical music, you know, and it's one of the things that The opera allowed me to do is bring a lot of those elements into telling that story. So I feel very fortunate growing up up in the time that I grew up, because that time it wasn't about trying to do one thing. It was about trying to enjoy all different types of music.
0: For sure. For sure. So that's sort of, you know, growing up and getting exposed to it. Um, When did you start deciding you're going to I'm going to pursue this seriously as a career? And, you know, I guess was was it when when you went to Rutgers to study it or, you know, when was that sort of, you know, aha moment? I can actually make a living at this.
1: I'm still trying to figure that out. dude. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, you know, it became serious for me when I was a kid. You know, I wanted to play football and I played on the little league teams and I was pretty good at it. until.
0: what, What position were you?
1: I played, I played tackle and linebacker. Nice. So, you know, it was interesting until I played for the Bayou Classic with Gremlin versus Southern, and I saw those big old dudes get off the bus. I'm like, nah, I don't think this is for me. So, <laughs> so right around that time, you know, music really became like a serious thing. So that was probably when I was about 15, 16 years old.
0: Gotcha. And then obviously those who followed your career, you know, you started touring with the Lionel Hampton Orchestra our Blakely Jazz Messengers. And then of course, um, and then you yeah. spun off and started doing your own thing. Uh, Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison quintet. How exciting was it when you finally got signed there, you know, and, and said, wow, I can actually start making some legit recordings here.
1: Well, it was incredibly exciting. I mean, especially at that time when we got signed by Columbia records, because that was one of the pinnacles of the record recording industry. You wanted, everybody wanted to be on that label. And Dr. George Butler was a guy that had confidence in us and put a lot of support behind us. You know, we did, we did great making records and touring and had large budgets to do the projects. You know, it was an incredibly exciting time, you know, but we didn't understand at the time, you know, how different it would be. You know, we were just trying to make records that could communicate to an, to an audience.
0: For sure, for sure. Well, you did you you, you communicated you five Grammys later or whatever. <laughs> you definitely communicated. Um, well, mm-hmm. I want to know. I'm a huge movie guy, and I know a lot of our listeners will, of course, know you for your collaborations with Spike Lee. How did mm-hmm. you meet Spike? I what's that story? We need to know that story.
1: <laughs> you know what's funny about that, man? We're talking about that the other day because you know, we had the, the rap party for the opera and Spike King and we were hanging out. And I was telling people, I said, Man, you know, uh, when I was a Lakers fan. And I remember the Lakers had just beat Boston, you know, for the championship. And I got hired to do this recording session with this film for this film. And I was like, oh, OK, cool. And when I walk in, Spike is standing at the door and I had on my, my Lakers hat. I had on the T-shirt, had on my purple and gold Converse. And he looks at me and goes, oh, you're a Lakers fan. I said, yeah, buddy, what about it? You know, Then next thing I know, man, he was taking me to Nick games and I'm sitting at court side, you know, yelling, <laughs> take a pat. But, you know, it was a, it was a it was a cool period because, you know, we were all just young trying to find our way in the world of art, you know, and he remembered me from that moment. So I started working with him from that moment on, whether I was just either the first couple of films, I was just a session player. But then on Mo' Better Blues, everything turned around and I became a composer for him.
0: Were, the, were those were those the the Patrick Ewing Knicks that he took you to or what era is that? Oh,
1: of course, of course, yeah. I man. Patrick Ewing Knicks, The Bird, Celtics. You know what I mean? The Magic Lakers, that was, a, And then right at the tail end of that period was the, was, the, was, the, was the Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls. So I got a chance to see a lot of those guys up close, man. And, you know, when you see them on TV, that's one thing. But when you see them up close and realize how big they are <laughs> and the way that they're moving, it's an incredible thing to witness.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess you and Spike, you, you'll always have Pat Riley in common, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> he, he
0: coached both, right? He coached the Lakers yes. and the Nick. All right. Well, yeah. I, we, I want to talk some of the Spike stuff. So, um, obviously, you mentioned Mo' Better Blues and everything. But even before that, was was Do the Right Thing the very first one you worked on?
1: Uh, I think it was uh, Do the Right Thing in school days. I can't remember which one came first. Okay. But one of those, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Did you know at the time – that you know do the right thing was was going to become such i mean it is a touchstone however many years what it was in 1989 but man i mean that is like one of the most iconic movies of all time and your music is in there well along with public enemy with fight the power but your music is in there for for, frozen in time as i mean that's well yeah
1: well you know but here's the thing i didn't write i didn't write anything for do the right do the right thing but i played on it his father wrote all of that music we didn't know that it was going to go down in history we just knew it was a good movie you know and the thing you got to remember back then when we were making those movies everybody was trying to trying to get the, the, the 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 film companies to understand how to market those films because we felt like there was an underserved community you know but now when you look at it now I'm glad to see that the movie has withstood the test of time and it's doing so well because Spike has always been committed to making great movies, man, as you can tell throughout his career.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I know you did Jungle Fever after that, but a a bunch of others. But I also I got to ask about working on Malcolm X again. Another one. I mean, did you were you did you get to be on set at all and see Denzel? I mean, Denzel basically it. Spike said before he thought that, um, you know, the ghost of Malcolm X was almost possessing Denzel in a couple of those scenes.
1: It's incredible. Oh No, man. Yeah. No, I was on set. As a matter of fact, I'm in the movie, you know, Uh, I mean, there's one scene where he's where he runs out of a club and and Billy Holiday is up on stage playing. And I'm the trumpet player in the Billy Holiday band in the scene. Um, But, you know, I remember we had just finished doing More Better Blues not too uh, um, uh, long before that. And Denzel called me just to have a conversation. I forgot what we were talking about, but he started talking to me about doing Malcolm X. And then he went into doing the opening speech over the phone. And, bro, it was eerie, you know? It was like... It was like he turned into Malcolm. And when we were on set, you know, the days that I was there, he was extremely focused, man. Cause I'd been on set with him doing Mobile Blues, but watching him on the set of Malcolm X was something totally different.
0: Oh yeah, well we'd be here all day if we, I'll, I'll I'll rattle them off. Clockers, Summer of Sam, 25th Hour, Inside Man, great movie. The docu- the Katrina documentary when the levees broke. I mean, so many good ones. But um, more recently, sir, the one I'm telling you, few movies you see and the score just loops in your head. It's stuck. But Black Klansman, now you got Oscar. Knowledge. Oh wow.
1: Yes, I'm telling you, yeah. I
0: can sit here right now and still <laughs> I mean, man, to that slow mo. How'd you come up with that score? Any good stories of creating that? That thing is epic. Well,
1: you know, well, you know, listen, man, that's the era from which I grew up in, you know. So immediately when I started thinking about that era and I saw that first scene with John David Washington in front with the afro, the leather jacket and the bell bottom pants, man, that my mind literally went to Jimi Hendrix you know and i started thinking about you know what that would be like and then as soon as i'm thinking about that spike calls me up and spike goes yo man i think we should have like 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 an rb band with an orchestra for the school and i went oh okay i said i was thinking along the same lines and then when i presented him the idea about like like a Jimi hendrix type of sound he was all for it you know so uh, charles altura who's the guitarist that you'll probably that you'll hear in frederick he's the guy that's actually playing on that on that score and like you know i told him i said look bro i don't want you to mimic jimmy it's not about mimicking jimmy but it's like playing in the spirit of jimmy and that's where we try to come up with our own sound but influenced by his music
0: wow so you'll hear the actual guitarist his name is charles Artur, Artur? altura all tour okay so spike will be the auteur he'll be the author <laughs> um <laughs> awesome well um and then i gotta ask one more then about you know your 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 second academy award it's a it's amazing that it took that long like we said <laughs> but mm-hmm. um the five bloods you get nominated again um man just talk about watching that and and you're composing scores for footage of, of chadwick boseman who you know no one knew was sick at the time but right. man, that scene is basically him like an angel saying, you know, uh, him saying goodbye, you know?
1: Yeah, well, you know, that was the interesting thing about it. Nobody knew he was sick. And I and I had talked to Clark uh, Peters and I talked to Spike. I even talked to De- uh, Del Lindo about it. You know, I said, man, did you guys, did anybody know? And everybody told me, and they said, no, he didn't say anything. And then Spike told me they would do those scenes and that that, that first battle running through the, Woods, you know, he said, uh um, he said "Chadwick will be the first one. He said, all right, let's do it again, let's do it again. You know, he there was no indication of him being ill. And at the same time, he kept it to himself. He was having treatments, man. You know, so it's a testament to, to that to that brother's will and strength of spirit, man. It should be a lesson for us all about doing things and figuring out what's most important for us, you know, and not to. Not to be so consumed with, with with our own situations but to do what's best for the collective good
0: oh absolutely And if anyone could have been concerned about his personal experience it was him exactly. going through those treatments and yet he, exactly. he had yes. that eye on the prize and, and sort of knew the legacy he was going to leave it was it was unbelievable rest in peace yeah yes. um well cool something completely different one more movie i wanted to ask you about something completely different Disney hired you to do *Princess and the Frog*. A lot of young listeners, maybe <laughs> yes. young listeners before they're ready for the Spike Lee stuff. Maybe they've seen you in that. But um, talk, and or yeah. you actually voiced some characters too, right?
1: I voiced one character. You know, the you know, and, and it's an off-screen character. There was one scene where the alligators playing the trumpet, mm-hmm. and they needed somebody to respond. Said, "Look at that alligator playing the trumpet!" And man, my son was there during the session, and my son gets the giggles rather quickly. As soon as he heard me say, because they wanted me to scream, so I screamed it. I realized, look at that! skater playing the trumpet. Man, he lost it. He lost it for about fifteen minutes. But it was a lot of fun working on it because, you know, it was a love letter to New Orleans. You know, and when when we finally saw the the the, the finished product, we were just amazed by it. And man, for about two months, man, I was like a serious like serious heartthrob for girls under twelve. <laughs> 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 a friend of mine she's a she's a judge she had me go speak at one of her programs for young kids and it was mostly young girls and when she introduced me they were just standing around and sitting there they weren't paying attention but as soon as they said this is the guy who's the sound of the trumpet from uh princess and the frog oh my God, I had the attention for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh my gosh, that's the alligator. That's well, exactly. that's,
0: a, that's a different gator than
1: Jungle Fever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: Um, exactly. Well, cool, very cool. Um. Well, speaking of sort of that, you're talking about the younger generation. Tell me about sort of the importance of giving back. I know because you were, the, for a while, you were the artistic director at Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz. You you did stuff uh-huh. at U- University of Miami, Berkeley College, College of Music. And now, I think now you're at, at UCLA, right? So, um, you know, yeah. just the importance of taking those sort of academic positions and being able to give back.
1: It's extremely important. I mean, you know, that's, that's how I became who I am. You know, somebody reached back and, and gave me a helping hand, Clark Terry, Milt Hinton. Ellis Marcellus, all of those musicians, man, and all of my teachers, Roger Dickinson who's my composition teacher who studied in Vienna, could have had a career of his own, but came back to New Orleans to teach, you know? Um, so I, I'm a firm believer of, in paying it forward, you know, and in doing so we're educating. Cause here's the thing, you know, I started looking around and started to realize those guys weren't around to teach anymore. So you have to think who's going to do it. So yeah, that's, that's the moment in time. Where you have to take responsibility and step up and just take on a task. And the thing about it, it's, it's extremely rewarding. That's the thing. That's that's the big secret behind it, because you 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 find talented kids and they come up with great ideas and they inspire you, you know, and it keeps you like motivated, keeps you on pace with what's going on in the community.
0: That's so well said. Uh, I guess final question I know you we mentioned earlier you know I think you've you've racked up five Grammys and uh, many more nominations even um any memories from from you know the first time you heard your 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 name called or are those? Are those ever in the broadcast? I know some of that Sometimes they give out a ton of awards, you know, before the show or whatever. But you know, any yeah. any good memories or, or just meeting any idols while you were there? i mean, you know, even if you oh, don't no, care you know, about I the had, acclaim.
1: <laughs> well, no, we had a lot of fun. Me and my wife went the first time. We had gone a number of times when I was nominated, but the first time that I actually won the award was giving up. You know, the pre telecast, and I just remember. Remember you know, um, uh, well, actually, no, not even the first time. You know what, I'll tell you about another time. I was recording, I made a recording with Jeff Watts, right? And man, when I got there, I was nominated for Best Instrumental Soloist. And when they announced my name, they also had to announce the title of the track that I played on, and I, and it was just so funny because they said, and the the, the, the winner is Terrence Blanchett, Dancing for Chicken. That was the name of the song. And they they hear that over the loudspeaker, man, was just hilarious. I'm like, only Jeff Watts would have me go up and receive an award for Dancing for Chicken.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You'll never forget that moment. (laughs) No,
1: never, never, ever. That's
0: hilarious. Well, it's it's an esteemed career, and I'm glad you're finally starting to I'm finally starting to give you some Oscar nominations. I'm sure there'll be more to, more to follow, but, you know, between us, this, we all know it should have been from years ago. But, hey, you know, it's yeah, starting, thank to, you. starting to happen. <laughs> thank right. you,
1: man. I appreciate that.
0: Cool. Well, everybody, come check out Terrence Blanchard, the legend himself, uh, at the Frederick Jazz Festival here in uh, my hometown of Frederick, Maryland, at the Weinberg Center on November 6th. Hey, thanks so much for doing this. This was a blast chatting with you.
1: Man, it was great fun for me, too. All right, cool. Talk to you later. Take care. All right, bro.
0: Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.